Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to this week's episode where we are talking all about episode 11 of Andor, the penultimate episode of Andor. This airs on November 16th. It was written by Tony Gilroy and directed by Benjamin Karen. And actually, we are recording this on November 15th. Uh, If you guys have been tracking with us, we've been, uh, through our coverage of Andor, we've been really lucky to receive uh, screeners for Andor. Uh, Kind of randomly, I literally, they just show up with no email. (laughs) It's actually, it's true. It's true. We don't get an email. (laughs) I don't, I feel like we've been talking a lot about this this season, and this is the first time we've gotten this many screeners. And I, I don't know, we like want to be upfront about when we're recording these too. But like with the screeners for Andor, it's basically like a like a separate Disney Plus account. It's called Debut Disney, and it's where they put all the screeners. It works just like Disney Plus. It like has the same kind of uh, design and everything, right? That like that, right? But you know, we we got screeners for like Bad Batch, right, last year and some other ones. And they always send an email when they're like, hey, this has been uploaded to your debut Disney account. But with Andor, we get no emails that they've been uploaded. It's just like luck of the draw that one of us. Also, this is just us, by the way. This is just us. Our friends get emails. We do not get emails. (laughs) But it's just for Andor. It's really strange. I don't know. So it's like, a surprise <laughs> if they appear. It's a great surprise. <laughs> yeah, it's, the, it's you know, the best surprise, but it is just kind of like they just get dropped off into our debut Disney account, like in the dead of the night and no one tells <laughs> us. But, <laughs> but we have seen, uh, we did get episodes 11 and 12 as screeners. Uh, we have only watched episode 11 at the time of recording this. Uh, you guys know the drill by this point. So we're super excited. This is an intense episode. Also, how many times have we said that this season in Andor? Every single episode <laughs> is intense. Every single episode is super, super intense. <laughs> I felt like the tone of this episode was extremely similar to episode seven. And it's the same writer and director of that, I believe. I didn't cross-reference that, but I'm pretty sure. And I feel like what was happening in this episode was pretty similar to what was happening in episode seven, where there was a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue in this episode, and a lot of reaction to things that transpired and like dealing with that sacrifice that they made. It was great. Great episode. 10 out of 10, as usual. Yeah, this episode, oh man, I immediately started crying (laughs) in the beginning of this episode. You had watched this episode before me, and I texted you immediately like, no, absolutely not. I cannot handle this. And of course, we're talking about Marva and B2 and kind of everything that was going on on Farrick. Okay, don't want to get ahead of myself um, jumping to Farrick. We actually started this episode with Cassian and Melchi. So why don't we start with them and their kind of storyline? I have really grown to love... Cassian and Melshi as friends who have been through a lot together, knowing that they work together later in the rebellion in Rogue One and they escape together. Uh, I thought the close-ups of their bloodied feet and hands and hanging off to the side of the cliff, I mean, it was in a lot of ways like a pretty easy metaphor about their where they are in life right now. They're barely hanging on. Um but I felt like them encountering those aliens, the Narkinians, who help them eventually after getting them stuck in that like um, net that is <laughs> like gooey and oh, yeah. spongy. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of wanted to touch it. I don't know. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, <laughs> I really liked those aliens, though. I thought that they were so funny and they sounded really funny, like the way they talked. And they were just very Neil Scanlan, which I welcome anytime. Yeah, I really liked this whole kind of this little storyline we had with Cassian and Melchi trying to get off of Narkina. We don't spend a ton of time with them in this storyline. Um, there's a lot of things going on with our other moving parts of of the show, but I think we spend a lot of good time, if that makes sense, with Cassian and Melchi yeah. here. And particularly this part with the aliens, the Narkinians, I love them. I think they're super cool and fun. And we've got the quad jumper, of course. And of course, all I could think about was Ray and the, we might just make it in that in quad that jumper. quad jumper. <laughs> 
<laughs> then it blows up. <laughs> so great. So great. The garbage will do. Anyway, that's all I could think about. But um, when they're captured, right, and Cassie and Melchi are, you know, in the this, in this squishy nets, um, they're, you know, begging for mercy, basically, don't kill us, don't kill us. And we hear the Narcanians talking about how much the Empire has uh, hurt the planet. This is, of course, a running theme throughout Star Wars, what what the empire is doing, the first order to other planets, um, you know, using their resources, killing off their natural resources, et cetera, et cetera. But what I loved about this is that the Narcanians actually have no intention of killing Cassian and Melchi. I forget what he says, but he takes his, one of the Narcanians takes his knife and like severs the netting and they tell Cassian and Melchi, you know, no one's getting killed today. Tell us where you want to go and we'll take you. And I just, I loved that so much because that quote from Tony Gill, where we keep bringing up this season of there's nothing cynical about our show. This is a perfect example of that. And I love how there have been so many moments of, I don't know, kindness and mercy from people throughout the galaxy and people trying to help each other. And I think that this was an instance of that. And these Narcanians, they live on a planet that is uh, overtaken to a, a pretty extreme degree by the Empire. And yet they're still willing to take Cassian and Melchi um, escapees, prisoner escapees uh, off planet. And I'm sure that's very risky for them. And I don't know. I just I was so excited to see that that was actually the outcome of that interaction between between the Narcanians and Cassian and Melchi. Yeah, I like the line, they not be killing ye. Yeah, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I I loved them. I think that it we come off of a really brutal episode that mm. was fantastic. And then we see these, the first time we see them, they're these Narcanians are a threat, right? I think that in our head, we are like, how are they going to go beyond them? They're making a run for it. Yeah. They're trying to t steal their quad jumper, which makes sense. And that is very Star Wars. But instead, they all leave together, which I thought was great. Yeah. I'm totally with you. Yeah. It was just, you know, it's just heartwarming, I think, everything they've been through. Um, but they go back to what's the name of this planet again? Uh, our space, Miami, that planet. <laughs> we go back. Niamos. Niamos. We go back there uh, for Cassian to get his credits and get the manifesto. Everyone was right about where the manifesto was, Nemec's manifesto. It was not with Marva. That was my favorite theory, but it was actually still in his hotel room that he snuck into. <laughs> to get while those um other creatures were aliens were sleeping there uh i thought that was pretty funny <laughs> that by the way that alien reminded me of i think it's the same type of creature who was in the same jail cell with Jin in the very beginning of rogue one. Oh, oh really that would be interesting okay so cassian gets uh his little briefcase his little suitcase uh you know with a blaster with nemec's manifesto with uh his credits from aldani and this is we'll talk about this of course but this is after he gets the news about marva and her her death and he and melchi are talking and i really love this scene because melchi is the one who keeps saying, you know, someone's got to tell everyone else, you know, how many of us survived? What if it's only us? And Cassian kind of has this look on this on his face like, you know, others could have survived too. And Melshi is like, no, what if it's just us? We can't stay together. We have to split up. We have to tell other people what they're doing. How many other people are imprisoned like us? We have to be messengers basically and so he's the one that tells Cassian that they're going to split up and you know it's safer that way for for the message to survive and you had put this in our notes but just like that persevering of the message and that that's something we've talked about in Rogue One too about Jin being the messenger right of Galen's message about what happened with the Death Star and so now we see this same thing kind of happening with Cassian now and I love the you know, it, when we did our roundtables last week with with Bo Willimon and Sane Wallenberg, uh, the writer and executive producer, Bo was the writer for The Last Arc and Sane is the executive producer over all of the show. Friends of the Force, I think, actually ended up asking this question 
that got this answer from Bo Willimon. But Bo basically talked about how season one was the education of the rebellion, the education of Cassie and Andor. And I thought that was such a great way to describe uh, this season overall. And I think one of those things that Cassian is being quote unquote educated on is about, I don't know, just kind of this like goodness in people or this um, want to have a better life, to have a better galaxy, to recognize evil and to want to do something about that. And I think we're seeing another moment of that between uh, Cassian and Melshi, uh, where he's the one that's really pushing for them to to be active, you know, that call to action. And now Cassian, I think Cassian is finally feeling ready to do that himself too. Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think that's a really good assessment of I don't know. I really like the concept of like season one is the education of Cassian and Andor and how we're getting so close now to the end of the season that him even grasping that manifesto and he, we can hear Nemec's voice even come through. I feel like it was a a sort of a, a reminder that that really does matter to him or we're about to see it matter to him in a really big way. And Mm -hmm. just this conversation with Melshi, I feel like really hammers that home about how important it is that they split up, but that they get their message out and that they're able to share the atrocities that happened to that prison and that they were able to escape because a big, huge, like a huge theme of that entire arc in the past was that no one knew that this was happening, that word traveled so little in that prison that there was no, that no one really cared that much about it. And I think the conversation between Melshi and Cassian, it really made it clear that it is entirely possible that Melshi and Cassian are the only two people that survived from that prison. Um, They don't know. Maybe when eventually they uh, form up that official rebellion on Yavin 4, maybe they meet others who also escaped. But at this point, it's just Melshi and Cassian, which um, I think in a lot of ways, it inspires a lot of hope that it's like, okay, so that everyone made a sacrifice for freedom. Some did not make it, but it's so super important for these two people to continue to live. So the, the best chance that they can have is by splitting up, making themselves blend in even more. Yeah. And I, I just love the idea that they split up, but that they eventually come back together in the rebellion together. Like that Melchi, Melchi goes off on his own and in his own hero's journey, he finds himself back within the rebellion too. Yes. He's just this everyday guy who ends up doing basically the same extraordinary thing that that Cassian does too. And he's in his own hero's story too. And I just, I love that concept. And I think that that's something everyone has, uh, all of the cast and crew have talked a lot about with Andor is the idea that people, anyone can can be part of the movement, can do mm-hmm. something actionable, um, can become a person who is actionable uh, for what is right and what is good. And I just think that's super cool. And I really loved this, that that last conversation between the two of them. Uh, again, the music feels very Rogue One in this mm. whole last section. I mean, the sunset of it all. It, the I sunset mean. of it all in Space Miami. <laughs> yeah, it just, you know, really, really makes you think. Um, Mm -hmm. but before we leave this section, because I, like I said, we, we didn't really spend a ton of time with Cassian in this episode. I meant to mention this back with the Narcanians. This is just like a little funny thing I picked up on. They were talking about killing the squiggles, the squiggles that like the empire is killing the squiggles. And that just reminded me of the squigs. And isn't that the drink worms (laughs) that they were having in Mon Mothma's party? (laughs) I don't know. We're never going to know until Star Wars... (laughs) gives us more information but <laughs> I remember in that episode feel similar at the party they mentioned the squigs so many times and I was like this has got to come back around like are the squigs poisoned or something and then here we've got the squiggles I don't know I don't know guys just just wanted to put it on the airwaves well I mean it sort of wouldn't make a little bit of sense if we think about the fact that the squigs are like a highbrow drink mm-hmm. almost like caviar and then it is being like taken over by the empire here um, I don't know. Yeah. On this like s- smaller, more unknown planet, I guess, where there's not a lot of creatures, not a lot of people. There's something there. Yeah. I don't know if that's 
actually true. I'm just postulating, I guess. <laughs> anyway. Okay, let's talk about Ferrex. Let's talk about Ferrex. Um, <laughs> where do we begin? Because this was so sad. I I was really I'm I'm really sad about this entire development. I know Kaylin has some thoughts, and we're gonna get to them. But B two, you know, they've portrayed B two as the old dog. I think Tony has said that that he is the old dog. But him even saying I don't want to be alone, I. He needs like a companion. Mm. He's basically tied to his dog bed, his charging station. <sighs> All he wants to do, the way the camera works where it zooms in on him like trembling and then it zooms out and he's right next to Marva's chair that she sits in mm. and he's cold because the place is cold. It's always been cold. I'm... <laughs> It's not, it's just not okay. I mean, okay, let's talk about first off, Bravos. I trust him with my life. Oh my God. We've said this already, but he is just a teddy bear. Oh, I just want to be wrapped up with Bravos. Like, I know. No harm would ever come to me with him around. I know. Well, we're going to eat our words next episode. No, maybe, but no, no. Sorry. Absolutely not. I trust. Every single person on Ferrex. Yeah, basically me too, except for obviously the outsiders, the Imperials. But (laughs) every Ferrex resident. I trust. I I trust. I trust. (laughs) I even even Tim, I trust, even though we were blatantly told not to trust him. (laughs) I think Tim was just mixed up. I'm I'm back on my soapbox about Tim being mixed up. He was. And caught between something he didn't he had no idea was bigger than himself yeah no he he absolutely was but he anyway the entire town (laughs) on ferrix i would trust they i think that's the whole point of like the whole beginning first three episodes right we talked a lot about that about just how tight-knit this community was and people throughout the season particularly with the empire like dedra um they have all talked about the the culture of ferrix and how tight-knit and closed off in a lot of ways uh the community was or just you know it takes a lot for the community to trust outsiders so everyone knows everyone and what is everyone's business and you know it's all of that and I think even even Bix and Cassian's last conversation, even though it was pretty heated, remember when Cassian comes to her at night after um, after she had been beaten up, um, or right after Tim died, actually, I was like getting the timeline mixed up a little bit. And she's talking about like how hurt the community is and how he kind of brought all of this into the community. And anyway, uh, I trust Ferrex, and here's where I'm going to put out my theory of here's how Marva is alive, seriously, uh, because I kind of refused to accept this truth that she... Number one, it happened very fast, okay? Yes. This happened very fast to me. Yes. Yeah. Her her death, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I... You know, we've they've been talking about Marva being sick, being cold, taking her medicine, you know, when Cassian was with her, but then also specifically once Cassian is gone. Once Cassian is gone, we don't really see Marva very much. We've had glimpses of her, but mostly we've had other people talking about Marva. And specifically, we've it's been from the perspective of people eavesdropping on people talking about Marva, if that makes sense. Like a lot of what we've heard about her in the past couple episodes has been from Cinta's perspective, for example, or from the guy watching Cinta's perspective. (laughs) These things that they're kind of overhearing about Marva and relaying to Vel and relaying to Dedra and the Empire. So I think it's specific that, you know, our perspective of Marva's illness, sickness, uh, is from other people. It's not really from the people of Ferrix, if you if you know what I mean. Number two in our theory of how Marva is actually alive, uh, you brought this up, is that we know that Marva was looking into basically what sounded like underground tunnels of Ferrix. Remember, they're like, she was looking at the tunnels that lead to the hotel where the empire is situated. Isn't that crazy? Okay. So 
there's some kind of network, hidden network of tunnels on Ferrix, something like that. This one I think is important is I was talking to someone else about this episode and we were talking about how sad it was that Marva had died. And they were like, yeah, even B2 is so sad. And I was like, yeah, they probably had to lie to B2 for him to for him to be sad, to like really sell it, you know, that Marva died. Like if they're lying about Marva dying, they probably had to lie to B2 as well, right? But then, guys, we know that B2 can lie. The, we, Him and Cassian have a whole conversation about it in the very beginning of the series about B2 telling two lies for Cassian and how much energy that takes B2 to tell a lie. And Bravos mentions in this episode that B2 has been on his charger all day long. So anyway, we know that B2 can lie. So he could put on a show, probably, I imagine. And I imagine he's probably actually worried about Marva in whatever she's doing. But he can lie. All right. The other thing here is that we're going to talk about this conversation later. But Clea and Luthen's conversation when Luthen is on the Fondor, they're talking entirely in code in that episode uh, or in that conversation about basically about Luthen going, I think, to Ferex and about what happened with Saw Gerrera. But they're talking about it as if Luthen is acquiring a new antique for the shop, right? But we know that we know that they're talking in code. And I think the show Andor has done this a lot where it's drawn parallels between different storylines. And so I kind of think Clay and Luthen's conversation could be meant to parallel all of the conversations that are happening um, on Ferex, like with Bravos, about um, Marva and what's actually happened to her. Like they're basically putting on a whole show about her death and she's not actually dead. And that's kind of my theory on why Marva is alive. <laughs> also, when I was rewatching, I noticed that Bravos tells B2, the daughters of Ferrix require your assistance in matters of grave importance. Mm-hmm. What what, and who are the daughters of Ferrix and what are they doing? I think if I can make a predict- prediction for episode 12, I have a list of predictions, okay? But number one on the list that I think is probably going to happen is a Ferrex rev- revolution. Mm-hmm. And I don't know whether that's going to be successful or unsuccessful. We can measure that in different ways. But I think we'll probably be left on like a solid cliffhanger. And I think like a live Marva is going to be part of that based off of the tunnel situation. Yeah. But it makes me think about the daughters of Ferrex and also the fact that her funeral is going to be held on Rick's Road, which feels, remember, she never wanted to walk there and now her funeral is going to be held there. That's where that's where Clem was hung. Clem hung. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It just feels like uh, ceremonial, but in a way that feels like I we didn't see her die either. I'm with you. I I feel like there's a lot of different things that could happen here. I believe you. I also wouldn't be surprised because Star Wars is, is tragedy if this was truly it. I mean, we did see Cassian react in a way that was very devastating. It could happen. Yeah. I'm just saying. I think it's such a great way to to kick off this finale episode though, because Everyone is playing a game right now. Like if we assume that Marva is alive and that there's a group of people on Ferrix that are planning this revolution. One, I don't think that for as as tight-knit as the community is, I don't think they're all completely up to speed with what's happening because they got to sell it, right? Like our, our, the leader of the, of this Ferrix revolution, if it is Marva and Bravos or some other collection of people, right? You have, they have to really sell it. So I think someone like that guy who told Cassian that Marva was dead, I think he probably doesn't really know what's going on because it seems weird to me that he would tell Cassian, you know, you know what I mean? So I, I don't think that everyone knows what's going on because I think that's part of the game that they have to play in a similar way to how Luthen keeps a lot of people in the dark about things that he's doing and things that he's been involved in. But, right, like Cassian then becomes a wild card back to Ferrix, back to the funeral. Of course, this is what Marva tells Cassian the last time they're talking where he says, I'll be back. And she says, of course you will. You can't forget that that's like out in the ether there. But then Dedra is wanting to lure Cassian back to Ferrix in the first place. That's why she's allowing them to have this big funeral. And then we have Cinta and Luthen, and they both want Cassian there too because they still want to kill Cassian for what he knows, who he knows about Luthen. Um, it's just, it's all, you know, it's all kind of clicking into place. And, and who's going to come out the victor at the end of all of this is 
going to be really telling as we lead into season two, right? I think there's definitely a world where Marva does ultimately end up dying at the end of this season, but I don't think she is right now. And I think that how Cassian is or isn't involved in that is going to be another big push for him to be a part of the rebellion. And I don't know, I'm I'm really nervous <laughs> about the next episode. I'm so well, I do, nervous. I think she, he loses everything. Yeah. I think Cassian loses everything in order to join the actual rebellion. Does that mean everyone on Ferrix too or just Marvo? I don't know. You know, that's I know. what makes I think, me nervous. I think it's – honestly, I think it's Marva. Marva is – and I would say Bix to some extent, but Marva is his thread – an attachment to Ferrix. Like, I don't yeah. think he would keep coming back if Marva was not there mm-hmm. at this point because I think he has a lot on his plate. He's running from the law, from. I love how past. you say that. He's got a lot on his plate right now. <laughs> yeah, he really does. He's so busy. He's like meeting after <laughs> meeting. Out, like, <laughs> it's, it's Q4. <laughs> yeah. It's, Q- it's almost <laughs> the end of Q4. Four. <laughs> got a lot going on. Yeah. I feel like well, he does. He truly has a lot going on. So I feel like he wouldn't keep coming back to Ferrix if it wasn't for Marva. Bix is there as well. And we have to talk about Bix for a second. Seeing Bix in this episode, she looked unrecognizable mm-hmm. to me. I was the first time we saw her, I was like, that has to be Bix, but is it Bix? Who is that? And that is testament to how much torture she has gone through. And even her reaction to seeing Anto Krieger was surprising to me. What did you make of that reaction? This was such a plot twist, I think, uh, to come in this episode because the Empire, they have the wrong guy, right? This whole time, they think, it, yeah. I think it's clear that they think Anton Krieger is Axis, uh, Axis is Luthen, right? And all of for for how smart Dedra is for how much she has been right about she's actually wrong about this really important piece i think we see this realization wash over bix that they actually don't know who the contact is they don't know who luthen is but i think it's it's complicated right because when Bix was first tortured, she tells Dedra, you're not going to believe anything I say anyway. And Dedra, right in that horribly chilling, scary scene, says, no, I don't think I will, and tortures her anyway. So I think Bix knows that even if she said no, which is the truth, actually, they probably aren't going to believe her. So maybe it's better for her we don't see her say anything, but maybe it's better for her to agree, appear to agree, react emotionally in a way that perhaps the Empire believes she knows who that is, that she knows who Krieger is. I don't know. I I think um, Bix is probably really scared, right, obviously, of the torture again. We see her kind of remembering it when we first see her in the episode, but it's obviously not something she wants to relive. And if it means throwing Krieger under the bus, someone she doesn't know, Maybe that's what she's going to do. Maybe she doesn't even realize that's what she's doing. Uh, But now we've got a lot of people sacrificing Krieger. Right. I completely agree. I think this is probably a good transition to start talking about Luthen and Saw in conversation here because I think if Bix says that that is Krieger, then it truly puts everything into line about what Luthen was saying to Saw about using... Krieger as like the sacrificial lamb basically for the betterment of the rebellion and staying together because right now I think that we can all agree that they're frazzled especially Mon Mothma and I think even Vel is a little on edge confused about what she should be doing how much of an impact Aldani had especially when she talks to Mon about all of that I mean I think everyone's on edge right you said that Caitlin so again if Bix says that that is access. She has already been tortured. She's already been tortured a lot. I don't think they're going to let her go. I, If they let her go, I don't know where she's going to, what, what's going to happen. Um, and if Saw then agrees to let Krieger be the sacrificial lamb, we might have a triumph at the end of the season. I think there's going to be some misses, obviously. And I, I feel like we, I'm already building a lot of sympathy for Anto Krieger, by the way, 
Um, I don't know about you, but I the way that they talk about him as like sort of making mistakes and willing to and now they're just really sending him off to die. I feel really bad about that, you know, but I do understand. And I think the sh- one of the show's main goals is to point out how sometimes sacrifices truly do have to be made for the greater good of the movement and how that is uncomfortable. And sometimes uncomfortable choices have to be made. And this one is the probably one of the most uncomfortable choices because a man that probably is uh, thinking that he's doing the right thing, that he's set up for success here, and probably thinks that he has the support of other like parts of the rebellion, like different sects within, he probably thinks he's going to pull it off in the same way that they pulled off Aldani, right? But we know as an audience that that's probably not going to happen because that's not the goal. And I think that in the entire conversation, we talked about this last episode, that if the show really does demonstrate the necessary sacrifices for a resistance, for a movement, for revolution, this one is uh, one of those necessary sacrifices. Like I'm on Luthen's side here, right? And I think the conversation with Saw was super interesting because we saw we saw a saw. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> we saw a saw that was really similar to the paranoid saw that we saw. Oh my god, that we saw. <laughs> we see in Rogue One. <laughs> that we see in Rogue One. Thank you so much. Wow, um, I did not expect to trip over my words like that. That was funny. Okay, but basically, I mean, if you've rewatched Rogue One recently, all Saw talks about is the spies, even within his own hideout. And I think that even pointing that out in this episode with Luthen talking to two tubes and being like, tubes is my man. He's telling me everything. And that uh, that power play between even those three was so interesting and so good. I never thought we'd get Stellan Skarsgård saying tubes in 2022 and pointing and sharing screen with two tubes. Are you kidding? Like, it's crazy. It's so, we live in a time. And I, <laughs> I, We're I think that, for these unprecedented times. times yeah. I, I think, I don't know. Do you have any comments about seeing Saw in this episode? Yeah. I'm really glad that we came back to Saw. And I, I'm kind of wondering why Luthen, like why Luthen came back to Saw Gerrera. Because the last time we saw the we saw them together, they see. Uh, if I, no, I see. I, I've seen and I've and I've saw. You saw, uh, you saw how, it, how it goes. Um, okay, when you saw saw. Okay, okay, wait. I can do this. I can do this. The last time they were together, saw said that he wasn't going to take part in. Uh, this partnership with Krieger that Luthen was trying to set up. And this was before Luthen knew that Krieger had to be sacrificed, right? He he genuinely wanted Saw to come and be a part of the rebellion, the network, whatever you want to call it, right? But I, And Saw said no. So I kind of want to know what propelled Luthen to come back here. I guess maybe we can assume that Saw called Luthen to come because right when Luthen walks in, Saw is like, we're doing it. Send us the, you know, the weapons you promised. Let's go. Give me the coordinates. And that's when Luthen is kind of like, hold on a second. So maybe Saw actually called Luthen to come back. And if I missed that in the episode, I apologize. But the way that Luthen talks to Saw. I don't know. There's there's a lot of sympathy for both of them, especially in the beginning for Luthen, where he tells Saw that he didn't want Saw to have to make this choice, that he didn't actually want to tell him what was going on because he didn't want to put him in this position, basically, to also have to sacrifice Krieger. Uh, he kind of wanted to be the one to live with that choice. He didn't want to have to make Saw live with it too. And of course, this is right off of the, right um, after Luthen's incredible, you know, Shakespearean monologue from the last episode about, you know, sacrificing basically any kind of humanity he has left in order for the greater good, the sunrise that he'll never see. Right. And I don't know. Once, um, once Luthen starts, I guess, kind of pushing Saw to uh, make the decision with him to to ultimately sacrifice Krieger, right? And kind of poke at that paranoia. I don't know. I felt a lot of uh, sympathy for Saw Gerrera. I, I think he's always been a tragic character, but particularly in this episode after Luthen kind of 
like I said, pokes at this paranoia. It just made me so like sad for Saw Gerrera. I, I don't know. It's kind of it's an emotion I haven't felt for him in a long time. And just kind of thinking about his bigger story, you know, from the events that started with him and Onderon all the way to Rogue One. It just there's so much that he has tried to do for the galaxy. And so many times the people have told him he's wrong. He's an extremist. And, you know, in a lot of ways he is, right? Of course, that's part of his characterization. The same with Luthen. But he's also in this fight for the greater good. And to a certain extent, I'm sure he would um, agree with many of the sentiments that Luthen talked about uh, in the last episode about, you know, sharing his dreams with ghosts, that kind of thing, you know, and this kind of knowing how paranoid he becomes in the end and seeing kind of a piece of that here in this episode. I don't know. It made me really sad, actually. And um yeah, I like didn't like Luthen doing that because you can really see how confused Saw is in that moment or, again, paranoid. I, I don't want to keep saying that word, but he's like, what What are you doing? Like, what is going on? <laughs> Agreed. Also, we need to leave space for talking about how absolutely epic this space battle was <laughs> that yeah. Luthen was going through. The lightsaber ship, the cutting the ties. The I know nothing about weapons, but whatever poked a million holes into that satellite dish. <laughs> it reminded so me satisfying. of the bird from yes, Dane. and it reminded me how satisfying those are. Mm-hmm. Like the effect is so good. ILM always killing it, but particularly here, and also the sound. I think was is part of that satisfaction. It makes me worried, though. I'm going to be honest. Another prediction that I have of mine for twelve that I don't actually want to happen, but. This close call with Luthen here makes me think that maybe Luthen isn't going to make it. Um, makes me, I don't, I, again, I don't want that to happen because we have Stellan Skarsgård in Star Wars. It's so cool. Um, but because that felt like a close call, it maybe feels like maybe in the next episode or in the future, he's just not going to live. Oh. And another sacrifice is going to be made. I just feel like we've had like an amazing monologue and then we had a really close call. I don't know. Is that sort of like a swan song? I don't know. It makes me think. I hope not. I hope not. I know. I, I know. Yeah. No. Th- this whole like little section was super tense, I think, with Luthen and the standoff. And our Discord, the Sky Talkers Patreon Discord, put forth this theory about Luthen being actually from the Santeca family, which... I'm so obsessed with this theory. Uh, Laura Santeca was one of my favorite pieces to talk about during the sequel trilogy. And the Santeca family is a pretty big part of the High Republic publishing initiative. And I continue to love them in the High Republic as I did in the sequel trilogy. So the idea that Luthen could be a Santeca is really fascinating because the Santeca family has been around for forever. They've been a prominent family in the galaxy and with the Republic for forever. So I think, you know, we've talked a lot about who Luthen is, where he gets his influence, money that he's had, kind of all of these questions, right? Even like his antique shop, um, where all of these things have come from. And him being from this very prestigious kind of old money family like the Santecas, I think could make a lot of sense. And the Santecas were known um, for, they were basically like hyperspace cartographers <laughs> in the High Republic era of charting like hyperspace lanes. Uh, what do they call them? Like proctors, basically. Uh, prospectors, sorry. And mm-hmm. anyway, um, people have talked about the Fondor uh, Luthen ship and that navigational droid he has is like, he's a bit of a question mark, that navigational droid. And that maybe this has something to do with Luthen being a Santeca. There's like that old hyperspace technology that perhaps his family still has. They still have this money. That's how he like funds his shop and has all of this network and connectivity is through his family. Anyway, all that to say is that was what I kept thinking about in this sequence. And I kept expecting Luthen to create this special secret hyperspace lane with the droid on his ship to escape the Empire. That's part of the Santecas and the High Republic is they can like 
there aren't like mapped hyperspace lanes and they're like back roads basically in hyperspace. And so I kind of thought he was going to do that. He didn't. But I still think the theory is a really good one. And he could have. He could have. Yeah. I think the theory is so good though. And I would love that kind of connectivity there. It doesn't really feel like something Tony Gilroy would address. Would address. Yeah, yeah. Because we know that Tony is kind of anti Easter egg <laughs> in a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think it would be a good one if there was going to be this kind of uh, you know, who's who's Luthen's father kind of reveal. I have to say you're missing missing a crucial part of this theory, oh. which is Laura Santeca was pay, played by Max von Sydow, yes. who yeah, yeah, yeah. is a Swedish actor, and so is Stellan Skarsgård. Mm-hmm. He is also from Sweden. So yeah. Right? <laughs> it would be so it feels intentional. Okay. <laughs> it, feels, it feels like it could work. And it just all of our characters to this episode have talked t- kind of to go back to this Zahn Luthen's conversation and kind of touch on Mama Mothma before we dive into her section. But they all talk about what Luthen knows and how much he actually knows and how no one knows how much Luthen knows. <laughs> and I think that is an important part of his character of just how deep it goes. The fact that he was on Ferrex, did all of this stuff, helped Cassian escape, and they still think it's Anton Krieger. That's insane, right? That's that's incredible. And, you know, Lor Santeca in The Force Awakens, he knows everything there is to know about Kylo Ren and is quite cryptic about it, too, and the history of the galaxy and the Jedi and the Sith and all of that. And anyway, he gives a great kind of mini monologue to Kylo. So, you know, it's like he's he's got... Like the Santeca's got the monologue gene or something. <laughs> totally. Before we move on to Mon Mothma, I want to mention that we did see Cyril in this episode really briefly wake up in his childhood bedroom and Edie coming out in a robe. Loved it. You know, snooping on the Zoom call that was so spotty and hilarious. This, I, I kind of forgot how much I missed this, like, crazy Scottish guy. (laughs) So um, I appreciated that. And it's very clear that if there is a revolution on Ferrix in the next episodes, Cyril's going to be there. So. Oh, yeah. Ready for that. He's sneaking out. (laughs) He stole money from his mother from her cool, like, little jewelry box thing. I was like, where again, the houseware selection. Edie's got taste. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Cyril in his pajamas reminded me of Pajama Juku. And now we have pajama Cyril. Cyril. Yes. So, yes. Very here for it. Always here for it. <laughs> Always here for the pajama <laughs> at leather, leisure wear in leisure Star Wars. Wear. <laughs> All right. Should we dive into Mon Mothma yes. section? Yes. Uh, we say Mon Mothma section, but really we're starting talking about Val because I think she kind of leads us through the Coruscant side of things. She goes and confronts Clea. Always a good day to see Clea. This girl, again would really thrive if I had Clay's energy and like attitude. I don't know. I I love it. Uh, she confronts Clea about where Luthen is. And I love that Clea kind of gets her own monologue in this episode. She gets her I share my dreams with ghosts moment. Uh, but she, Vel, so confident is like, I gave him Eldani. What have you given him lately? And Clea is like, (laughs) you don't even know. (laughs) She says, I don't have lately. I have always. And ooh, that was just great line. (laughs) Spectacular line. I I loved it so much. And it's kind of the first time that we've heard Clea outright talk about um, what she does for Luthen or I guess together. They're in a partnership. She's under him, like in a hierarchy. I think it it's not super clear, but this is kind of the first time she's talked at more at length about what it is that she does. And, you know, she references that there are lots of scared people that come by her window and Val is just one of many. And I feel like that really put Val in her place. Um, but Vel does ultimately come with information that Clea did not have about Marva dying uh, on Ferrix. And I thought that was interesting because Vel and Cinta are communicating, which, yes, glad they're communicating. But we know that Vel had originally come to Clea a couple episodes ago because she wasn't in contact with Cinta. So I'm glad that now after she's left Ferrix, 
they have been in communication and now she's the one to actually relay this important piece of information uh, about Marva. So that's kind of the little piece that we get with the two of them. And then, of course, Clea later is speaking in code to Luthen right before he uh, is almost captured by the Empire about what happened. And it's that whole, you know, all of our representatives are there in parentheses on Ferex, right? Like that's kind of the unspoken thing and this highly valuable piece that can't go into anyone else's collection that's Cassian, right? So a, a great a great moment between all of those characters, I think. And again, what Luthen and Clea are talking about, that kind of code, that metaphor that they're using throughout their whole conversation, I kind of want to apply that to what's going on on Ferrix too, and how they're talking about Marva and her death. I don't know. I think I think that could be a parallel that we're supposed to be picking up on here. But after Clay and Vel, um, Vel then goes back to Mon Mothma's house, to the Chandrillan embassy. And ooh, things have taken a turn here. Oh, my gosh. Okay. So seeing Leda at her, like, uh, what's the term I would say? <laughs> um, it's a Girl Scout type vibe, okay, yeah. where they're saying vows. But it seems like there's a... a cult-ish vibe coming from the repeating of these vows that go it's it's a long long thing that they have to say I thought it was so interesting that Mon Mothma is observing and telling Val that she's so Leda is so interested in the old ways and like the tradition of the Chandrilla that Perrin isn't the one that's influencing this that this is Leda fully and I like the line her saying it's weird it's stronger here than it is at home about the traditions and she says that to Val um, it's sort of like if we want to talk more about like we did in past episodes about how this unchangeable house in which they live in on Coruscant is influencing and smothering them almost into f- forming to these old traditions. I really feel like that's happening with Leda as she is being raised in this immovable home, right? Where there is just traditions all around her where Mon Mothma can't change anything to progress forward. She's just put into a position now where this is what Leda wants to do. This is how she is doing. And this is this is what she is doing. And um, Mon isn't discouraging it. And neither is Perrin. They're just kind of letting her go for it. It's also interesting that Mon says that it's the only thing she shows up on time for. Therefore, sort of cluing in that perhaps Mon was trying to sway her to do something else or like have a different hobby and she just is very uninterested in that and then Val really calling out Mon Mothma about like don't tell me you're make you're taking proposals too and this episode I think she's gonna do it guys I think she's gonna I think she's gonna do this I don't know what the term is honestly but introduction um, it do the introduction with Davo and Davo's son and make a proposal situation for Leda and that is her huge sacrifice and I feel like it's going to blow up in her face I don't think it's going to be successful I I don't know what's going to happen I'm very nervous yeah I don't know either I think we're finally starting to see Mon Mothma at kind of her breaking point in this episode she kind of looks like she has tears in her eyes throughout the entire time that we see her in this episode even like her initial response after Vel says uh, don't tell me you're taking proposals and I think Mon Mothma's immediate response is I'm in so much trouble Vel and that's when she tells Vel kind of the full truth of the money uh, take Holma which great that Vel kind of knew immediately who was going to be involved here uh she doesn't say anything about the marriage proposal about Davo right away, but I I don't know. I kind of feel like they do have that conversation eventually or Vel knows that she's going to have to go to great lengths to kind of get this taken care of. And I think I think Vel is making the connection here that it's something to do with Leda and proposals and everything like that. And from Mom Mothma's perspective, it's like she's in so much trouble and this isn't even necessarily something Leda has told her she doesn't want. Like everything that she's seeing from Leda is saying that this is a tradition Leda wants to partake in. And obviously I don't think that that means it's okay because Leda is 14 years old. Her brain's not fully developed. Right, right, <laughs> you right. Know? But 
Mon-Mon. It makes the decision more complicated, though. Yeah. And I think that's what the show is pushing towards. Yeah, because, you know, you know, thinking about Leda's perspective here, if if Leda was this young teenage girl who was like, I love the idea of of having this arranged marriage, right? Because she loves the tra- the traditions of Shindrella, right? And her mom, Mon Mothma, is the one who's been like, no, we're not going to do that. And then finally, Mon Mothma's like, all right, yes. But we know that Mon Mothma doesn't actually want that for Leda, but is instead using it as a distraction, a way to get Davo to help her with her money problem, basically. It's just, it's so, ooh, it's so delicious in kind of a sad way <laughs> um, and in a in a layered way. I don't know. It just, I continue to have hope for Leda. I'm scared for her, but... I don't know. I This is a really interesting development in Leda as a character, as her being someone who is super invested in the tr- traditions of Shindrilla, even knowing that her parents partook in that and don't have a happy marriage. Um, I just think that's a really interesting takeaway. I think there's something to be said about this group of Shindrillan kids who presumably don't grow up on Chandrella, but want to have this connection to where they come from. And so they lean hard into these traditions, whereas it sounds like Val and Mon and Perrin grew up on Chandrella themselves and actively pushed against these traditions. And I think... Um, I think that's an interesting facet, of course, to like generational differences and, you know, growing up within a culture and then and then, you know, someone a kid like Leda being removed from that culture. But then, like you said, Charlotte, also living in this, you know, embassy house, basically, that is imbued with Shandrillan culture. It's just it's fascinating, I think. And I think this, yeah, is a really interesting turning point for Leda's character of, you know, wanting to be for lack of a better word, like the Shendrillan Girl Scout and being so proud and excited for that. Yeah. I'm just really worried. I also think that the lighting, if I remember correctly, I've only seen it twice, but I feel like the lighting when Vel and Mon were talking was darker than usual. And the like, honestly, just the ambiance of their conversation just was really grim. Like the entire thing was really grim. Yeah. I, I just, I'm, I'm worried. I'm mm-hmm. stressed. Well, the chanting, it just yeah and the, there was also like a screen or like a a wall that was lowered in front of the dining room that I don't think was always there mm-hmm. that felt like it was a sort of a cage and I just feel like all of this is very purposeful yeah. of caging Leda into this tradition I suppose when she's in there with all of her friends and they all have their hair the same way um yeah I don't know it, it feels like, again, the architecture informs the story in a lot of ways about how Mon's story really does take place almost entirely in the home mm-hmm. and how that's sort of smothering yeah. for her. Yeah. there. I wish I had written down the chant, but it brings up something about like staying under authority or like submission, something like that, but also talks about braided in it references like the a braid too, which mm-hmm. Leda wears braids a lot, so that feels like something that is inherent uh, traditionally Shandrillan. Uh, and then we know that Alderaan has a huge culture of like hair braiding too, so these things feel connected. Um, or that you know we should know that the braid is significant in Shandrilla now um, through some of these things that have happened in the episode. Just like we know it's important on Alderaan, definitely. Kind of the the last thing I wanted to talk about um, or just mention uh, when we're thinking about Marva and kind of what's going to happen next episode is uh, the the Empire guy who's situated on Ferrix. He tells Dedra that it's tradition on Ferrix when someone dies to be bricked. He says it specifically that the Ferrix custom is to be bricked when you die, uh, which seems very intense to me. <laughs> and uh, he says that after you become a brick, they put your name on it and then they find you a wall, which feels like a metaphor in there, <laughs> the way he says it and the way the scene just kind of ends. But later on, Bravos tells B2 that Marva is in the stone now. She's on her way. And I don't know. It peaked. My, my ears perked up with him saying the word stone and not brick. 
and she's on her way now, which sounds very active. I don't know. It just, I just wanted to also put that out there too, that he doesn't use the word brick. He says stone, mm-hmm. which I get, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of the same, but they're also not. Mm-hmm. I think that if your theory about Marva is not correct, I still think we're going to see a pretty traditional Ferrex funeral, which might leave, which might have questions there. But I wouldn't be surprised is if, okay, so if we're moving away from Marva's alive theory, okay, and we move into there's going to be a funeral and there's going to be bricks and there's going to be stones. And we know that there is, a, the Imperials have taken over a hotel that is, has windows that we we know that stones and bricks can be used as weapons and can be thrown. It makes me wonder if those stones and bricks that perhaps every Ferrex resident is going to take and maybe put on her her casket or something. I don't know. I'm mm. I have no idea, right? Mm-hmm. Could potentially be turned around and used against the empire. Yeah. Um somehow. That's good. I like that. All right. Well, we'll see. We'll see. I mean, you pointing out the – I feel like every line is intentional, right? It might yeah. have a payoff. It might not. It might just inform the culture in which – like in make a better sense of place for the home base that is Ferrix. Or it could be used later sort of as a Chekhov's gun situation. Yeah. There's a bunch of different different scenarios here. I wanted to say one more thing also, and I, I should have said this earlier, but when it comes to Dedra and Dedra – uh, us following her, first sort of rooting for her in a world of man, and then her finding herself at the top of a like a pyramid structure of people working for her and getting her way and finally finding success and being right until she is wrong. I think that something happened throughout this entire series where, like I said, we we rooted for her in a in a different kind of way, right? I'm I hope that that is taken with some nuance, right? to the point where she was then recognized for her being right, which again, I think we were like, wow, that's, I'm glad that someone is recognizing that she is right. But I think she might have gotten too in over her head with the Anto Krieger stuff and with Axis that she's really looking for a final piece, but she hasn't actually got found it yet. And that's why she is going and really banking everything on Krieger and thinking that Krieger is access. Yeah. When he is simply a point and not even a very distinct point. Yeah. And I well, think and it shows... Too. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, like Cassian too. She thinks Cassian's a major player in this. And he's not. I mean, he's, he's not. He's, he became he one is, on Arcana 5. Not. But <laughs> again, there's a lot of pieces that uh, Dedra is uh, not privy to yet. Totally. And I, I think that recognizing that Dedra sort of got a little head over heels, I suppose, with and like drunk with power over the fact that she was given that power based off of her research um, shows something about what it means to be in power and how um, you will enact that power and do whatever you assume to be right about that, even if it's not right, Mm -hmm. just to get your way to display that power and to keep that top spot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we know and maybe potentially even progress. Yeah. Then the thing is, too, she's wrong. So we know that yes. Cassian makes it out of whatever happens next episode. Obviously, we don't know about Luthen, but it feels like even if Luthen dies, it feels like he'll take his identity with him. So I, I think at the end of the day, Dedra fails and she's going to be left with egg on her face, maybe next episode or, or next season. But it's coming because. She's she's actually wrong. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm wondering how I'm going to feel when she is proven wrong. Whether it's going to be as satisfying as Cyril at the end of episode three when he does have egg on his face, right? And we've talked about that and how mm-hmm. that was such a great moment. Or if I'm going to feel bad for her because I have been like quasi rooting for her and again in the world of man, but then also realizing that she is a fascist. So it's sort of um I I don't know what my feelings are going to be and I don't know how the audience is supposed to is going to react, I guess, and is supposed to react. I think, you know, I think I'm ready for you know, after the back half of this series with Dedra, I'm ready for her to be taken down 
Yeah, uh, I am too. I am too. But I am too. Right? I think you know C- Cyril's going to be there too. So what happens with him? And Kyle and Tony Gilroy have both talked about how Cyril is his his morals are kind of unclaimed really right now in the show and I didn't say that very well Tony Gilroy said it in a much more eloquent way in some article (laughs) or interview but basically that a lot of what Cyril has done so far has been for himself and for his own name it hasn't really been for the empire for the rebellion um not in the way that he thinks it has been you know what I mean and so in a lot of ways he still has to be educated on the galaxy and like fully pick a side because he hasn't really he's just He's kind of just trying to survive and clear his name. And I realize that that's kind of understating a lot of what he's done throughout this season. But Tony has talked about him like he could kind of go either way, ultimately. Like his fate isn't fully decided, actually. So I think that's going to be something to watch for next episode of what he sees. Like I I almost wonder if Cyril isn't as much an active part of the next episode, but he tries to be. But then everything that he witnesses kind of starts to click some things into place for him about who he wants to be uh, in the coming season or in the future, right? And maybe that's someone who is fully aligned with the Empire or maybe now he has some things to question or think about, you know? I don't know, but I think he's mm-hmm. kind of the one I'm going to be watching. I, I kind of feel like him and Cassian are, are kind of the wild cards because no one expects either of them to be there. Like, right, like Dedra expects Cassian to come to the funeral. That's what she's hoping for, right? She wants to lay the trap for Cassian. But the people of Ferrix aren't expecting Cassian to come, right? I think the people that are planning this rebellion, because I think whether Marva is alive or dead, I think they are planning something. And I think that, I don't think that's like a a far stretch to think that they're going to do some kind of action next episode. So they're not expecting Cassian to come, I don't think. Not the people in charge anyway. And whereas... Dedra, though, is not expecting Cyril to be there. So I wonder what all of that is. Everyone has kind of someone they're not expecting coming to Ferrix in the next episode. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it all plays out. Can't wait. I'm so Can't excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. Okay. I just have to acknowledge, though, that I'm so excited, but I'm really sad to be ending mm-hmm. this Andor era. Oof. It has been such a joy and I am really sad because I think this is the top quality Star Wars that we've sort of ever received if I'm being completely honest and I am sad to see that go to be honest. Like I'm sad. Yeah. I think that yeah, this has been kind of the best thing <laughs> ever it's been it's been so good and you and I joked about this show for so long because it felt like it had been filming for years, years, <laughs> five years. We would joke that Andor's been filming out in the UK for like a decade now and no one knows anything about it. Um, but now it's finally here and it's finally over too. And I also just want to say like we've been really lucky to be a part of the press circuit for Andor and feel very grateful to have done that. But I think in general, I really enjoyed the press that Lucasfilm has done for Andor. I feel like mm-hmm. they did it, um, had a lot of opportunities for the cast and crew uh, before the show and during the show to talk about it. And that felt really unique to me. And so I think I really hope that we get to see more of that in future uh, th- uh, projects that come out. Um, and it makes me excited for what we might get from Andor after the season ends. Uh, you know, will we get a, a gallery documentary type of thing? It makes me really excited. I just feel like they've done a really good job with Andor of like with its promotion and with access to the creators and to the crew and the cast uh, and about their role and really talking about this show in a really meaningful way. And I've been really grateful, of course, to have been a part of that and to be able to bring that to Sky Talkers, but just in general, as people who love Star Wars and love hearing people who make Star Wars talk about how they make it. That's so cool. And yeah, I think we said this last episode too with our um, roundtables, but you don't, we we don't get to hear from the cast and crew as much like during the show's airing or, or even after it really. So it feels really unique that they've done that with Andor. And I think it's really cool. And I hope they continue to do that. 
Yeah, I completely, completely agree. Everything about the press has been has felt really honest, mm-hmm. but also earnest. Yeah. And I really, really appreciate it as a fan. I couldn't have said it better than Caitlin. Very excited to be a part of it and just feel very lucky, but also feel very lucky to be a fan. Yeah. Like very lucky. It's great to be a Star Wars fan right now. <laughs> We're so lucky. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I think that's probably going to wrap up our show. And since Caitlin and I have the screener for episode 12, we're going to go run and watch it. <laughs> <laughs> that we are. Yes. Cannot lie to you. That's what I'm yeah. doing right after this. Um, <laughs> but I hope you guys did enjoy the show. Are you looking forward to the final episode? I There's a, a lot of things are coming for us, I think. So pop some popcorn, get a glass of wine. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> or in, if you're watching in the morning, maybe like a mimosa, a little bit of Bailey's in your coffee. I won't judge. I think we're all going to need it. So have at it uh, for for the, fin- the finale episode of Andor. Uh, until then, you can find us on Twitter at SkytalkersPod or our personal handles. Charlotte's is at Clarity. Mine is at Caitlin Plusher. We also have our TikTok, our website, Facebook, Instagram, all great places to find us. And if you haven't left us a review yet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify recently, we would love it if you took a couple seconds to go and do that, help other people find our show and cry about B2 and the fact that he doesn't want to be left alone. Uh, We need more people to talk about (laughs) that with us (laughs) and cry about that with us. So please go and leave us a review. It would truly mean the world to us. And if you're interested in other ways to support our show, how to get in on the Sky Talkers Discord and hear about uh, new theories as they emerge, like Luthan Santeca, we would love for you to be part of the community. You can head on over to our Patreon and check out our different reward tiers there. And I want to say a huge thank you to these patrons. Joey, Jackson, Lauren, Neil, Diana, Kelly, Susanna, Cherie, Katie, Sarah, Z, Swara, David, Sam, Bailey, Mary, and Thomas. Thank you so much for supporting us. Yes, thank you guys so much. And until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Thank you.